First off, a very special thank you to Mr. and Mrs. Joe and Seema Alberino from Chicago, who are sponsoring tonight's shear. And this is in honor of the, uh, really in memory, of Mrs. Alberino's grandmother. Her name was Rachel Bas Rivka. It sounds like she was a very special person and she was very close with Sima. So, Mitzvah Shem, our learning this evening should be a schos for Elias Neshama. Special thank you as well, as always, Isaac Romano for making things happen. Can we get a round of applause for Isaac? This is a Big day is coming up in a couple of weeks. We look forward to celebrating together. And as always, a very special thank you to Torah Anytime for sharing this year and many others with people who cannot be here in person this evening. So I had many questions on the title. The title is, There is no I in Purim. I, there is. So I think there are a couple answers. Answer number one is there's no capital I in Purim. Answer number two is Purim in Hebrew, there's no I. <laughs> Answer number three, there is an I, but there's also a you. Right? Might be the deepest. But conceptually, there's no I in Purim. I'd like to uh, try to get down to the origins of the character, the personality of Mordechai and Esther. Obviously, they were tzaddikim, they were prophets, they were people we can't even fathom. If we were standing in their presence, we would be shuddering with fear and reverence. But to explore, to uncover, what was the Nakuda? What was that main power they had to bring about the nace of Purim? to orchestrate the miracles that took place. What was that koach that Mordechai and Esther had? And how can we, in our own small, mortal way, emulate the, uh, the strength and the courage of Mordechai and Esther? There's a fascinating medrash that tells us, we know Mordechai was taking care of Esther because she had no father and mother. And uh, one day, Chizer al-Kol Menikos, Esther, he was looking around for someone to nurse Esther, and he couldn't find anybody. So what happened? There was a miracle that took place, and Mordechai himself nursed Esther. Okay. Sunday morning, we're learning about the concept, are Midrashim real? How do we decipher Chazal? But, but this particular message is something that requires some level of elaboration. What does that mean that Mordechai was nursing Esther? I'm sure he did many amazing things throughout his career. I'm sure many miracles happened. What's significant about the fact that he was able to nurse and take care of Esther in this way. The name of Mordechai is also intriguing. Right? It's often quoted the Gemara in Chulin, where the Gemara has the question, where is there a reference, where is there an allusion to Esther in the Torah? Where do we find Haman in the Torah? 
And those are more well-known, those are more famous. But the other question, which is not as, uh, as much on the table, it's not spoken about as much, is Mordechai min ha-Torah minayin. Where do we learn out Mordechai? Where is there an allusion to the personality of Mordechai in the Torah? So it quotes a Pasuk in Parshish Kisisa, regarding the preparation of the oil, you should take for yourself how much? 500. And the Gemara says, that's the Hebrew. However, the Aramaic translation is, and that sounds like Mordechai. So here we have an explicit allusion to Mordechai in the Torah, from the Bisamim Mardror, and the Aramaic translation of that is Miradachya. What in the world is the significance or the connection between Miradachya and Mordechai? It happens to sound very similar, but obviously there's got to be something deeper here. How is Miradachya at all explain or describe the Tzadik Yisod Olam Mordechai? Now, I did find it interesting, I didn't have time to research this, but it's always been on the back burner. The Pasuk that's quoted as the reference to Mordechai, Mar Dror Chamesh Meos. Where else do we find Chamesh Meos, 500? In the Megillah itself. How many people did the Jews kill through Siyata Dishmaya? 500 men. And then when the king finds out about it, he tells Esther, Hamalka, Bishushan, Habira, Hargu Hayuhudim, Va'abed Chamesh Meos Ish. And they killed, they were able to destroy 500 men. So there's definitely not a coincidence. The fact that Mardor Chamesh Meos and the, the accomplishment of the Jews living in Shushan is that they were able to destroy 500 men. I'm sure there's a deeper connection there. Ayin Shem Vaduk for a different time, a different exploration. Looking into the name of Mordechai. So we have this allusion, the Gemara Chulad Marduror, but it also describes him, Ish Yehudi Hayabishushan Habiro Shmor Mordechai. There is a Jewish man living in the capital Shushan. His name was Mordechai. Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ish Yamini. And every one of those descriptions, the Gemara says, is extremely significant. What is Ben Yair referring to? Says the Gemara in Megillah Daf Yud Beis. Ben Yair means Ben Sheheir Einehem Shel Yisrael Betfilaso. In our looking at Mordechai, in the Megillah's description of who he was, he was a person who was able to enlighten the eyes of Klal Yisrael through his prayer. Sheheir Einehem Shel Yisrael Betfilaso. Just very simply, what does that mean? How do you enlighten the eyes of Klal Yisrael through your prayer? The Gemara goes on to say that that Shimi means that his prayer was accepted, it was listened to by Hashem, and Kish is that Shehikish al Shari Rachamim, that he was banging on the doors of mercy, and Hashem opened the doors for him. 
So those descriptions I get. But what is the insight of he was able to enlighten the eyes of the Jews through his prayer? So these are some questions just trying to understand the character, the name, the essence of Mordechai HaYehudi. I think so often, and we've spoken about this in the past in different occasions, it's very easy to view the big things in life where people are looking or there's a big, uh, there's a big scene going to be spoken about, people are noticing me and therefore I have to make sure to do this well, those things take more time and energy and the assumption is that's more significant, it's more important. The little things, like the conversations we have, the relationships, the, uh, the interpersonal connection we have with friends and family that may not be so exciting they may not be something we're getting prepped for. There may not be a crowd. Those things we often assume are not, not as chashev, not as important. The, the Medish Rabbah tells us that Mordechai, we know, was pacing back and forth as soon as Esther was taken into the palace. And he was nervous, he was concerned for her well-being. Says the Medish Rabbah, Amr lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem said to Mordechai, Ata derashta shalom nefesh achas, you are seeking out one neshama, you care deeply for Esther, for this Bas Yisrael, Ladas shalom Esther, to know how she's doing, to be concerned, to be davening for her, I believe we mentioned last year the Svas Emma says that he was Bedafka pacing in front of the palace so she could actually see him there and feel supported. Even though logically she knew and he knew that he couldn't do anything. But just knowing that my caretaker is outside, I could see him, that makes me feel encouraged, that gives me hope. So Kadosh Baruch Hu says to Mordechai, you care about Esther? Chayecha sofcha lidro shalom uma shlema. I promise you, you will have the merit, you will have the schus to be in charge, to be the roa, to be the shepherd of an entire nation. This is what the Pasuk says at the very end of the Megillah. You will be the one seeking out the welfare and the benefit of the entire nation. You will be the one speaking peace to your children, to your descendants. It seems like in these few lines, we have a little bit of the secret formula. What was that magic that Mordechai had? I just read recently that Coca-Cola and other big companies, you know, with the coronavirus going on, a lot of the products and the ingredients that are made in China are obviously, they're not being manufactured, and likely this will have a pretty massive impact on the production of many things that we assume you could just go down the street and buy a Coke. There's no shortage of high fructose corn syrup in the world, right? Until something like this happens. What was the magic formula, though, for Mordechai? The little glimpse we get from this particular chazal is, he cared deeply about Esther. He loved her, and he wanted to support her. 
Then HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, that's your ticket to greatness. You're going to be the Manhig Yisrael, you're going to be the Roa, you're going to be the leader of Klal Yisrael, because if you love her and you care about her, then you have the capacity, you have the credentials to love and take care of my people. This is not just a Mida Kenega Mida, some kind of uh, privilege or reward that Mordechai was receiving, but there's a real psychology here. The way it works in general is that when I can really love you, we, like we spoke about last week, the idea of reyes, of friendship, of breaking down barriers, to have this ru'ua, this sense of looseness, to be able to really connect. When I can do that with one person, that transforms me into a lover. That transforms me into the kind of person that has the capacity and the desire to love. The Rabbi Yona says this point so beautifully. The Mishnah in Perkyovos, one of the five most central midos, is Chaver Tov. And the way the Rabbi Yona understands this is to become a good friend, not to get a friend. That's a different Mishnah. That's Kenelacha Chaver. But Chaver Tov means become a friend. Says the Rabbi Yona, Sheyidvak el derech hayasher hazeh to connect with this path of Yashrus. Who should I connect to? Should I go out of my way to try to become super friendly with the person who kind of gets on my nerves? One day I'll get there. But the first step is, go to that person that you have a lot in common with, that you already share some level of history, and you like him. Get closer with him. If it's your spouse, if it's your child, if it's a friend, try to really maximize that relationship. What will come from that connection? If I can create a real love, if I can really care for you selflessly, where it's not about me, it's not my agenda, I'm not trying to manipulate on any level, I just want to be there for you, that will transform me, that will be Margil, that will make me the kind of person where now I can and I want to be there for everybody. So when a Kodesh Baruch says to Mordechai, I see that you care desperately about Esther, it's not just a reward, it's a result. The result of this kind of love is that you will have the ability to love many, and therefore I am giving you the leadership status of Klal Yisrael. That's an insight into the secret of who Mordechai was. We find in the Megillah there are two words used over and over again. She'ela and Bakasha. How would you translate She'ela? No pressure. Avi, asking, okay, or requesting, how would you translate bakasha? No pressure, Mrs. Kaiser. It's also a request. It's also a request. So what's the difference between she'ela and bakasha? And we have it all the time. More serious, deeper. Okay. Let's take a look here. Source number six we have from Perak Zayin in the Megillah, where Achashverosh says to Esther, 
He says, listen, what is your request? What are you asking for? And I'll give it to you. And what is your bakasha? What is your desire? Up till half the kingdom and it's yours. Vitan Esther Hamalka, this is when they had that second party together. Esther says back, Give me my neshama, give me my essence, through my request, and my nation through my bakasha, through my desire. So we're going to translate She'ela as request and Bakasha as desire. And she's telling the king, give me my, my life, spare me my life. That's my She'ela, my request. And my nation, save Klal Yisrael, that's my Bakasha. That's my desire. Where else do we have famously these two words juxtaposed? She'ela and Bakasha, request and desire. In Tehillim. In Tehillim, capital Chav Zayin. David HaMelech says in his poetic expression of love, Acha she'alti me'es Hashem. I ask, I request one thing from Hashem. Osa avakesh. And that's the thing that I really desire. Which is what? Shifti be'es Hashem kol I want to be dwelling, I want to live in your house, I want to be totally connected with you to have an awareness and a relationship at all times. I'm requesting and that's what I want. So there the Malbim tells us what's the difference. And he says like this, She'ela is my verbal expression, my asking from you what I have in mind. Bakasha, my desire, is something deeper. That's the real motivation behind what I'm asking for. The Duvna Magid gives the following example. Right? He also is on the same page as the Malbim. He understands requesting as the verbal expression and Bakasha as my real agenda, my motivation. The Duvna Magid says, if a child goes to a parent and he really wants a Snickers bar, he doesn't have any money. Mommy, can I, uh, can I get a dollar? Right nowadays it's like five dollars. Can I get five dollars for a Snickers bar? Uh, why, do you, why do you want five dollars? For a Snickers bar. So right there you have a She'ela and a Bakasha. The She'ela is, I want money. Okay. Why do you want that? Why are you asking for the money? Because you have a Bakasha. Your desire is, I need chocolate and caramel. Right? She'ela and Bakasha. So it comes out according to this definition of the Malbim and the Duv the Magid that when David Melech says, Acha she'alti me'es Hashem vakesh, what David Melech is really saying explains the Malbim is the exact thing that I'm asking for, wanting to be with you, wanting to live with you, wanting to have you in my life in a tangible, palpable way. I'm not asking for that in order to get other things, in order to vanquish my enemy, in order to have parnasa. 
those are all things that will come from a closer connection with the Boreolum, I know that. But that's not why I'm asking for this relationship. The thing I'm asking for is the thing I want. Everything else means nothing to me. What I want is you. That's She'elen Bakasha. We also find, and this is quoted in the Sefer Yemei Purim from Rabbi David Cohen, who is the great Rosh Hashiva of the Hebron Yeshiva Shlita. He quotes from Rabbi Yonason Eibshitz. Rabbi Yonason Eibshitz, living in the 1700s, has a different understanding of She'elen Bakasha, but we'll see it's really the same theme as the Malbim and the Dubna Magid. Says Rabbi Yonason Eibshitz, Esther and Mordechai, Kol Magmosim Haisa Bishvil Yisrael. Their entire goal, their motivation was only for the benefit of Klal Yisrael. How do we know that? Based on the Pasuk of Nafshi Besheilosi Vaami Babakashosi. Esther says, I ask, I request for myself and my nation, that's my desire. Explains of Yonas and Eibshitz. Also referencing the Pasuk of Acha Sha'alti Me'es Hashem. He says, She'ela requesting always has a connotation of a temporary request. It's a She'ela. I'm just borrowing something. Right? If you go to your friend, can I borrow your watch? The assumption is I'm not going to be holding on to it for the next 80 years. She'ela is, it's a short time. Bakasha. There the connotation is Lidovar Tamidi, something that's consistent, something that's nitzchias that will go on forever. Says of Yonas and Ibshitz, Esther was saying as follows I'm asking for my own life. That's a Sha'ila because I know I'm here now and I'm gone tomorrow. I'm not gonna live forever. Of course I wanna live, I don't want to be decimated, Khalila, from this decree. So save me, that's my she'ela. However, my bakasha, my real deep desire, meaning for nitzchias, looking into the future, my vision of Klal Yisrael's, we have to allow the Jewish people to survive. That's my bakasha. So she'ela is the short term, and bakasha is the long term. And therefore, in the understanding of Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz, when David HaMelech says, Acha she'alti me'es Hashem, he explains, Right now I ask, while I'm alive in this world, please allow me to be close to you. However, what I'm looking forward to in the eternal realm is is to be with you forever. So we have really two different ways of understanding the distinction between She'ela and Bakasha. We have the Malbim and the Dubna Magid. She'ela is a verbal asking, and Bakasha is my real motivation. And we have the Yaros Devash, Yonas and Eibshitz, who says She'ela is temporary, and Bakasha is more long-term, that's eternal. Either way, it's an amazing insight into the personalities of Mordechai and Esther. Explains Rav David Cohen Shlita. He says, no matter how you spin it, the thought is Mordechai and Esther wanted nothing for themselves. There was no I in their request. The Bakasha was, everything was long-term. Everything was Klal Yisrael. 
It's not about me. It's not about what I could gain or what I could lose. Of course, I want to live longer. But the only goal, says Rav David Cohen, They didn't bring themselves into the equation whatsoever. It was all about saving the Jewish people. That's the only thing we care about. And we're willing to sacrifice everything for Klal Yisrael. The famous story told about the Vilna Gon. We know the, uh, the first yeshiva of modern times was the yeshiva in Volozhin. And uh, there are many sources that reference a story where Chaim Volozhin had this great idea he was looking at a society where Limud HaTorah on a high level was almost lost. You had a few Yechidim, you had a few individuals who were devoting their lives to learning, but there was no industrial form of, of getting kids into a yeshiva. It was hodgepodge. This little shtetl, they had the Rav, and you had a few kids who would learn with the Rav, and those who had potential, they would go on and learn with somebody else. But he felt this was the time we have to fight Haskalah, we have to fight many of the different ruchos, the winds that were interfering with authentic Judaism. And he had this brilliant breakthrough. I want to make a yeshiva just like we had in the times of the Gemara, where there's a real system. We have Rebbeim, we have Talmidim come to us from different countries and different communities. So he goes to his Rebbe, the Vilna Gon, and he's very excited about the idea. And he's presenting it to him, Betuv Tam Vedas, with eloquency. And he says, Rebbe, this I feel is something that's so incredibly needed in Klal Yisrael. If we have the, the capacity, I feel I could do this, and it could mamish change the, the whole future and destiny of our people. And the Gra didn't flinch. Didn't seem that excited at all. And Rav Chaim Velazhin tried a different angle, trying to explain uh, what it would accomplish, what it could do. And the grub basically gave the message that I don't think it's the right time. They didn't say much more than that, but he did not give his blessing, and therefore Rav Chaim Velazhin did not start the yeshiva. Some time later, it's not clear how much time elapsed between the first meeting and the second meeting, but probably more than a year or so, Rav Chaim Velezhin comes back to his Rebbe after more thought, after more discussion, after more hisbonanus contemplation, and again he tries. His Rebbe, I really feel that, that this can, can be so incredibly helpful. I think if we just do this in the right way, in a responsible way, this can have such a positive impact. And the Gra had an entirely different response. <clears throat> And he was very excited about it, and he encouraged him, and he gave him a bracha that it should be with Hatzlacha. So Rav Chaim was curious. He said, what changed? Why was it when I came to Rebbe the first time, there was really you know, no movement? Did you not feel there was a need a couple of years ago? What, what happened between now and then? And the Gra answered back to Rav Chaim Velazhin. He said, the world is pretty much the same as it was but I see a difference in you. When you came the first time, you were really excited, you were enthused with the idea, but there was a lot of I in the conversation about what you could do, and your yeshiva, your talmidim, 
I didn't feel comfortable with that. If we're doing something this drastic that could really be changing the direction of Klal Yisrael and the future of Torah study, it has to be done purely l'shem shemayim with sincerity. Nothing about me, nothing about the ego. When you came back this time, it was a whole different presentation and I felt a whole different vibe. And therefore, I give you my bracha. I want to read to you a letter. And this is a letter from a young man who is in a combat unit in the IDF. This goes back to 2002. Uh, this actually is dated Tesvav Adar Tafshin Samich Beis, the 15th of Adar, 2002. This is a letter the day before he's going into a very dangerous mission, knowing most likely he will not return alive. And what I find so incredibly moving about this letter is we're not talking about Rav Chaim Velazhin. We're not talking about someone in his 80s who has been immersed in Torah his entire life. We're talking about a man probably in his young 20s who had a young wife and a future and the, the crystal clarity he was able to have, being, being not just willing, but, but desirous of looking beyond himself and his own needs and his own family, and just keeping in the forefront of his mind, what does Klal Yisrael need? Reading this from a young man, I think, is uh, very powerful. Let's read a few lines together. His name was Gadi. היום בבוקר קיבלנו הודא שהמפצה המתוחנן מאתמול יתבצא בזרת השם היום. This morning we received the news that the operation that was planned yesterday will take place today. היילי מאוד קשה לא לספר לך את האמת. It was very difficult for me not to share with you the entire truth up until now, not to. Uh, like I share the, the danger of the mission. He says, Ahuva Shali, my beloved, Ani Margish Shemitzad Echad, Ein Dover Shani Rotsa Ba'olam. There is nothing else I want more in the world, Yoser Melios Itach, than to be with you. Le'ehov Osach, Ulahokim Osach Itach Bayes Umishpacha, and to establish together a home and a family. Of a mitzad sheni, but on the other hand, he goes on to say that I feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility for the nation and the security of our people. And there's always a price to be paid in war. And a nimuchan lios hamachir hazeh. And I think I'm ready to be the sacrifice if needed. It's times like this where we have to have the mindset of ki'ilu ein l'chachayim pratiim, that we don't have individual lives, but we work and we function and we fight for the klal. I'm looking at the global picture here of Am Yisrael. Yofi my beautiful one. Ani ohev osach kol kach, v'hatsar hayochid sheli hu ha'uvda sha'at titztari. I love you so much, and my only pain is that you will be in pain. And knowing that I will not be the one to bring you joy in life as your life continues in Mirza Hashem. 
There's nothing in the world that you deserve more than to be happy. But you should know that I will always be watching out for you wherever I will be, the Edog, and I will be worried. Basically saying, I'll be there for you even after I leave this world, and I'll be davening that you find someone that could bring you more Osher, more joy than I can. And even at times like this, knowing and preparing for what will most likely be the last battle I fight, and I know, I have confidence, that whatever will happen to me when it does happen, you will be the last person, the last thing that I'm thinking about as I leave this world. We've always been together, even before we entered this world. And even once I leave this world, we will remain together. Ein Yish, please, he says, do not despair. Tamed Leos Besimcha, try to continue with joy and promise me, he says, that you will move on. You will start a life and you will have a family and you will be happy. This is for Klal Yisrael. This is not a Mordechai HaTzadik. I'm sure he was a righteous young man. You could tell by this letter, he was on a madrega. He was living in a dimension of clarity that most of us probably will not attain in this lifetime. That's living where there's no I. Like he says, it's times like this, ki'ilu ein l'chachayim pratiyim. We have to view it as if we don't have our own lives. Now, obviously, to have a quick parenthetical note, this can be taken to the extreme, and it could be very unhealthy, and a person who only gives of themselves without being aware of what they need is obviously not what the Torah is suggesting. But the hashkafa of trying to work as much as we possibly can to break out of the little bubble in which we live and to be focused on somebody else, to be there to love somebody, to be there to care for somebody. And that creates, like their Ben Yonah says, it's not just me and you, but now it's me and Klal Yisrael. I could become, in the words of the Revolba and Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, I could become an Isha Klali, a person that lives for the Klal, a man or a woman that devotes my life, that sacrifices my life for the greater Klal Yisrael. There is nothing more significant than that. doesn't mean that we have to give our lives, but we have to live our lives for Klal Yisrael. That seems to be one of the main nekudot, one of the main secrets to the success of Mordechai and the righteousness of Esther. What's fascinating is we all suffer from different times. We have ups and downs in life, and sometimes uh, things are going smoothly, and sometimes we're a little bit depressed, just not feeling it, I'm not in my zone. And sometimes that feeling could last for 10 years, 
just not in my zone. And during those times, it becomes harder and harder to reach out and, and to start looking and, and, and trying to have empathy for others because we're so consumed in our own hurt. But the simcha of being able to reach out, the simcha of, of emulating the Mordechai and Esther paradigm is something that is really scientifically proven. There's an amazing article in Time magazine where it says scientific research provides compelling data to support that we have evidence that giving is a powerful pathway to personal growth and lasting happiness. Through MRI technology, we now know that giving activates the same parts of the brain that are stimulated by food and other physical pleasures. Experiments show evidence that altruism is hardwired in the brain and it's pleasurable. Along these lines, there's another article as well that I found very fascinating. This comes from the Association of Psychological Science. It's entitled, the, Go- the Joy of Giving Lasts Longer Than the Joy of Getting. Right? There's a phenomenon known as hedonic adaptation. That's actually Yiddish. Hedonic adaptation, basmeint. So the more you have a pleasure, so the less exciting that pleasure is. If I have a great, delicious, juicy steak, medium rare, just the way I like it, crispy on the outside, soft on the inside, little A1 sauce, for those of us who are not so sophisticated. So that's going to be amazing. And then I have that the second night, it's also very good. And the third night, it's nice. And by fourth and fifth night, can I just get some some fish and chips? (laughs) How about some noodles and cheese? Something else, please? The steak is only as good as the appetite. So we have this constant conflict in life. We're always searching for comfort and pleasure, and the more we get of it, the more we need, because I've been there, done that. I get bored of it. However, in this particular article, there were two different studies where the exception to this phenomenon of hedonic adaptation might be altruism, might be the joy and the pleasure we receive when we give to others. Two quick interesting studies. The first one was, this is research from University of Chicago, that there were um, a group of people and there was some kind of uh, game they played where everyone received $5 a day for five days. And they had to spend that money the same day they received the money. They had the choice, they could keep it for themselves, meaning they could spend it on a tchotchke, they could buy a, a burger with it, a Snickers bar, right? <laughs> or they could give it to some kind of charitable cause. So everyone did their thing, and they had to write down at the end of the day their overall feelings of happiness, or did something meaningful with it. End of the day, and end of five days, they felt a lot better than those who spent the money on themselves. And the excitement of getting something, for example, receiving the $5 after you got it for two, three, four, five days, was no longer exciting. And spending it on whatever you chose as the same person, it was a whole different experience. Somehow that pleasure didn't diminish. 
They did a second study with 96 participants. I'm sorry, this is 502 participants, where they played 10 rounds of a word game puzzle and a similar type of thing, getting money after each round. Those who were giving it to charitable causes, they felt happier. Those who spent it on themselves did not feel the same level of joy. What was the conclusion of the researchers? What did they come up with based on this? So their psychological thesis was that the simcha that we feel when we get something is more focused on the result. So if it's the same result over and over again, it's not going to be that exciting. The simcha we have when we're giving something is not just on the result of you getting something from me, but it's more a focus on the process. I could be engaged and experience the giving it to you, and therefore the joy doesn't diminish, it doesn't get stale. But ultimately they left off with a question which the Rambam will answer. Their question was, why doesn't this also happen regarding the happiness we feel when we give? What's the qualitative difference? We could all say, morally speaking, it's a lot nicer to give $5 than spend it on yourself. That's true. But why does that happiness not diminish? So the Rambam gives us the real answer. The Rambam tells us, famously, mutav lo'adam laharbos matanas evyonim laharbos besudaso bishluach monos l'reyav. If you're going to spend a lot of money in any aspect of Purim, do it on matanos le'evyonim. And parenthetically, those who have not given checks into the shul yet, please do so. But spend the money on those people who need it more so than buying other items for your friends. Why, says the Rambam, not only is it the right thing to do, but he says psychologically, She'ein shom simcha gedola u'mefoora, there is no greater joy in the world, quantitatively but also qualitatively, than to be able to give to those people who need. To be able to constantly be thinking, who are the, the families who might not be as popular? Who are the people out there that might not be invited to a Purim Suda? Who might not be getting hundreds of shalachmanos? Those are going to be my priority one. That's the greatest simcha in the world. Why is that the case? Right? The question that was left by the researchers, says the Rambam, when we're able to bring joy to another human being, then we're really emulating HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Then we become more godlike. There's nothing more pleasurable in the world than living through a godliness, than living through that divine light of being able to be a giver and to be a lover. That's why that pleasure doesn't diminish. So getting back to our questions regarding the name of Mordechai, it seems so incredibly random, the fact that he's named after a particular spice that was used, Mardror, which the Aramaic is, Maridachia. What does that have to do with Mordechai? What does that have to do with his magic? Explains Meshe Yeshua Leib Diskin, the Maril Diskin, quoting from Rev Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld. 
He says, because tzaddikim, they're just like busamim. They're just like good, beautiful spices. Because they're mezakes harabim, they bring up the masses. Shetovosan mispashetis al kol their goodness is able to spread and uplift all of those around them. Kamo besamim, just like the aroma of besamim. Asherechen hatov mispashet al kol hasoviv lehem. Right? It's so beautiful, it smells so good, it's so inviting. It spreads out to everybody around you. The tzaddik, the chassid, is someone who's not only focused in his own world of ruchnias and spiritual growth, but I'm looking out for you. It's not about the I, it's about the you. It's like the summon. Everyone gains from who this person is. And that's on their agenda. Right? The Ramchal says the word chassid really comes from the word chassid. A chassid, a righteous person, is one who is always trying to think, what can I do for him? How could I encourage them? How could I be mechazek them? What's this whole thing about through his davening, he was enlightening the eyes of Klal Yisrael? What does that mean? Explains the Menos HaLevi, the great of Shlomo Al-Kabetz, the author of L'Chadodi. He says... It wasn't the tefillah itself, right? Shimmy is that Hashem heard his tefillah. But Yoir is Kishiro Oso B'nai Yisrael. When the other Jews saw his intensity, they saw his bitachon, they saw his faith and his trust and reliance in Hashem through the tefillah, that gave them the light that awakened them to this reality. This is real. When they saw Mordechai davening for real, and we have to assume this is part of the intention of Mordechai, he went out into the street not just to make a scene, but to inspire others to daven as well. And when they were exposed to that level of sincerity, they were exposed to that level of reality in his tefillah, they also joined in, and their tefillah was more powerful because they had their, their horizons were expanded by seeing someone like Mordechai davening to Hashem. Mordror, he was besummim. He was looking out for Esther. He was caring for other people outside of his bubble. And that's why Hashem said, Chayecha, I promise you, you will be the Shomer, you will be the leader of Klal Yisrael. That's the Nakuda. That's the element needed. I want to end with a story about the Chazanish. This is uh, going back to the 1940s. We know the Ponovich when he moved to Eretz Yisrael, he had visions of rebuilding the entire Torah world in Eretz Yisrael. I want to speak about this more at a different time in Mirza Shem, just going through what his visions were and how through miracles he was able to accomplish everything. He saw, though, there was a beautiful place for a yeshiva, and he wanted more than anything to reestablish the Ponovich Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. His goal was to build a base medrash that could hold comfortably 500 Talmidim. At that time, how many 
people were learning full-time in Eretz Yisrael. Altogether, through different shuls and kolalim, there were about 200 people altogether. And they thought the Panovitcher Rav was mamish crazy. He said, no, you don't understand. This is the future of Klal Yisrael. We're going to build the base medrash for 500 people. However, before he did that, he had something else that he had to do. He had to build an orphanage. So he established an orphanage for many of the children who Nebuch lost their entire family in the Holocaust. And the orphanage he called Bate Avos. This was in 1949, and the problem was, as the problem still is, money, money, money. It's such a sad thing that we need money to do everything, right? Wouldn't life be so much easier? But money was very stressful. Out of his nine children that were murdered in the Holocaust, one child survived, right? Rebbe Vram. And Rebbe Vram was really his right-hand man in the organization and the administration of the most of the Torah institutions that he was building. And his son basically said, Tati, we do not have enough cash to keep both the yeshiva and the orphanage going. The yeshiva was built a few years after the orphanage, we have to just pick one and focus all of our efforts and all of our energy and all of our money on this one institution. But there's no way to keep up Bate Avos Orphanage and also to have the Panovich Yeshiva. It's going to flop. Said the Panovich Rav back to his son. He says, Ramallah, Ramallah. You should know that after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, in Poland, and Lita, and Hungary, Galicia, Romania, Alsa, Ba'ashin, all of these Torah communities went up in smoke. Choshev li ma'od, livnos od yeshiva. I wanted nothing more than to rebuild a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. The Chafetz Chaim told me years before, and he knew, he knew that I was a visionary, and he cautioned me. He says, Teda lecha, you should know, Torah bli chesed, lo You have Torah without chesed, without focusing on others, it will not last. You need the chesed to come first, and that's why he explained to the son of Romola, that's why I built the orphanage first, and that's why we have to do whatever it takes to keep both institutions going. Bli chesed lo Torah, without the chesed, without looking above and beyond our little either family or community, without focusing on Kalal Yisrael, you can't have Torah either. An example of this is there was a young boy that came to the orphanage, he was 10 years old. And he lost his family, his entire family in Auschwitz. He had an elderly aunt that was able to find him and take him to the Panovitcherov. This boy comes in, and his clothing is torn and tattered, and it smells terrible. And the Geveret, the nurse who was in charge, she embraces him with open arms and welcomes him home to his new home, and she gives him a fresh pair of pajamas. And she's trying to convince him, you know, you should wash up, you're so filthy, to become a little bit comfortable, put on the new pajamas. And the shum often, no matter what she would say, 
This little boy had no interest in taking off his clothing, and he said, I'm going to sleep like this with my shirt and my pants and my shoes and my tzitzis, and that's it. And the next day she tried. And the third day she tried. It was four days where this boy would not even take off his shoes, and finally she had to go to the Panovitcherov himself. He was known as the Tati of the orphanage, and he would be there to, to sing songs with the children, to give hugs and kisses. So he comes to this little boy. His name was Mordechai. And he says, Moti, Moti Masuk, sweet little Moti. We've we got to get you out of these clothing. We have nice new pajamas. You can take a bath. You're going to feel so much better. And he said, absolutely not. And he tried bribing him. I'll give you a chocolate. I'll give you some money. Nothing worked, and the little boy would not get out of his pajamas. Eventually, they said, maybe we should see the Godel Hador. Let's go to the Chazanish. And the boy was surprised by that offer, but he went along. They take the little Moti Mordechai to the Chazanish, and they explain to the Chazanish what's been happening, and he doesn't feel comfortable changing into pajamas. Do you have an Eitzah? What should we do? So the Chazanish was trying to figure out what's what's keeping him back. So he said, how about this? How about you, you take off the dirty clothing and, and we can wash it and then we'll get it back to you tomorrow and uh, you'll still have everything. We'll keep it in a very safe spot. Absolutely not. Well, but the Geveret, she does this for all the boys, you know, very trustworthy. I don't trust her. So he said, maybe, maybe the Panovich Rav himself could take a chrayis, he could take responsibility for your clothing. I don't trust him. And the Chazanish said, well, would it be okay if, if I became a Shomer? I could be the guardian of your clothing. And at that point, the boy broke into tears. And he said, every time I had to take off my clothing, if it was before Auschwitz living in the ghetto, if it was during Auschwitz, people would take it and I would never be able to find it again. I can't take off anything that I have. And there was also, it seems, there was a psychological connection. This was his past. His family and his parents were tied to the clothing that he was wearing. Understandably, he didn't want to wash those clothing. And Chazanish said, I promise you, I'm going to be a shomer. I'm going to guard these clothing. And the boy acquiesced. Said, okay. So the boy now went with the Geveret, with the nurse, and she was going to get him bathed. And in the meantime, there was another younger man there and said, oh, I'll, I'll take care of it, I'll wash the clothing. And both the Chazanish and the Panovitcherov said, Chas v'shalom. The Chazanish took off his kapata, took off his jacket, right, like this, rolled up his sleeves, and the Chazanish had many other things to be doing. But he rolled up his sleeves and he took this dirty laundry of the pants, of the underclothing, of the tzitzis, and he started putting it in water. And that water became black as a raven with all of the dirt and the grime coming off. And he was working together with the Panovitcherov. And the two of them, as they were cleaning this, this, this clothing, they were crying and their tears were going into the water basin. And they had to empty out the water a few times to make sure that there was going to be fresh water. Chazanish turned to the Panovich Rav and said, we're the parents of Mordechai. We have to be there for him his whole life. Mordechai comes back about a half hour later and Baruch Hashem, finally he's clean, he's in his new pajamas, he smells good. 
the first thing he asks is, where's my clothing? Chazanish shows him, it's hanging up, it's going to dry now, we took great care of it, all ready to go. This little boy eventually got married, he learned in the kolel of the Chazanish for many, many years, and he was one of the very chashev of Reichim, very chashev Lom Dei Torah in Eretz Yisrael. He himself had nine children and grandchildren and now hundreds of great-grandchildren. But that is an example of Torah without chesed. It's not going to thrive. Torah with chesed, that's how you create generations and generations of Shomer Torah mitzvot Jews. What was the secret of Mordechai, the Mordror ben Yair? It was just having that focus together with Esther. It's not about me. It's about what I could do for Kalal Yisrael. With Siyat HaDashmai, we should be able to emulate their ways and change the world one small step at a time. Afrei Lichen Porim, everybody.